Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. I'd like to thank Indeed for continuing to support my podcast. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview, all on Indeed. You can get started right now with a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. Offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions do apply. Well, the U.S. stock indexes were all closed today in observance of the Good Friday holiday, but that didn't stop the Labor Department from releasing the non-farm payroll report for March. And there was a lot of anticipation surrounding this report. In fact, there were some whisper numbers that the number would come out above 1 million jobs created during the month. But the official consensus was about 658,000 jobs. We ended up coming in at 916,000, so near the high end of expectations, but not above that whisper number of 1 million jobs. But they did upwardly revise the original estimate for February originally reported at 379,000 jobs, that was upwardly revised to 468,000 jobs. The official unemployment rate also declined as expected from 6.2% to 6%. But again, unofficially, the real rate remains well in excess of 10%. I mean, I'm not really sure what it is. You can look at the U6 number, Uh, which is still above that number. But the labor force participation rate, while it did notch up from 61.4 to 61.5, that's still a very low number. So despite the fact that a lot of people return to their jobs, there's still a lot of people that aren't working at all, thanks in large part to the U.S. government, which is uh, providing tremendous financial incentives for people not to return to work. But you have to keep in perspective 
that this is not a strong economy creating all sorts of jobs that weren't there before. This is an economy where jobs that were temporarily put on hold are being restored, right? People who left their jobs because of the COVID shutdowns are now returning to those jobs. And so this is going to happen for a while, but all of the people who lost their jobs are not going to return because many of the businesses that they used to work at are not going to reopen. Or some of the ones that do reopen may only reopen temporarily before they shut down. So yes, we're going to get some big job numbers in the near term, but don't confuse that with a booming economy. We're simply allowing the jobs that we already had and which were temporarily lost to be restored. But again, we're not going to restore all that was lost due to a lot of the damage that is permanent. But as the effects of the government cure for COVID, all of the new debt, all of the new money printing, all of the new spending take their toll on a weakened economy, I expect a lot of the jobs that have been restored to be lost again, except this time it won't be a temporary loss, it will be a permanent loss. Looking at some of the other numbers that were released as part of this report, average hourly earnings notched down a tick. They were supposed to rise two-tenths of a percent. Instead, they went down by 0.1. Average hourly earnings year-over-year also uh, well below estimates. The consensus was for a 4.6% increase following the 5.3% from February. That was revised down to 5.2, but we only got 4.2 as the actual increase for March. Hours work, though, did tick up. They were 34.6 hours uh, in the prior month, and we came out at 34.9 hours, slightly ahead of the 34.8 that had been expected. You know, if we look beneath the surface and see where a lot of these jobs came from, leisure and hospitality leading the charge, 280,000 jobs there. Again, these are restaurant workers, hotel workers, bar workers, back on the job as the economy is reopening. So, you know, not some sign of some booming economy that is creating all these jobs. It's just the jobs that we had to put on hold being restored. Look at education. 190,000 jobs added back in education. Of course, a lot of students are now going back to school. And so the teachers are also going back and the administrators and other people uh, in that employment. So those jobs are being returned. One of the big job numbers, though, that probably represents actual new jobs is construction. We had 110,000 new construction jobs. And this, of course, is a reflection of the current housing bubble that is taking place or boom, depending on your perspective. But a lot of this construction obviously is taking place in the areas of the country that people are fleeing to. You have a lot of people that are leaving the cities for all sorts of reasons that I've discussed on this podcast on many occasions, but they're heading for the suburbs and there's not enough housing there. So the developers are trying to accommodate this new demand to get out of cities uh, by building uh, new dwellings. And that is one of the reasons that you're seeing a lot of upward pressure on prices, not just for the prices of homes, but the cost of building them, all the construction costs, the raw materials, even the labor costs are rising. 
And so that's where you're seeing those big job gains there. Manufacturing, though, 53,000 jobs. Again, in the scheme of things, not a very big number. The U.S. continues to lag on manufacturing, which is why our manufacturing trade deficits continue to hit record highs. And I think we're going to keep setting a string of new record highs in the months ahead because the vast majority of the jobs that we are going to be adding are not going to be in goods producing jobs, but in service providing jobs. And all these jobs, all these workers are going to need to buy things that other Americans are not making. The stuff that they're going to be buying are things that workers in other countries that actually have stronger economies are going to be uh, producing. And so the trade deficits are going to continue to rise. Here's some other sectors, transportation and warehousing added 48,000, other services, 42,000, social assistance, 25,000, wholesale trade, 24,000. These are smaller numbers. Uh, Retail was 23,000. Obviously, a lot of these stores opening up. Uh, Maybe surprised that wasn't a bigger number. Mining, just 21,000 pretty small. Financial services, 16,000. Remember, not many jobs were actually lost in financial services because a lot of the people working in financial services were able to work from home. So obviously not a lot of jobs lost, so not a lot that are going to be restored. Now, normally the non-farm payroll number would evoke big reactions in the market, but obviously the markets are not open to react. Although while the actual stock markets are not trading, the futures markets are trading and they're all higher. It looks to me, I've, I've got them up on my screen now, it's the small caps that are leading the charge. Right now, I'm seeing those futures up about 1.7%. Uh, Dow, S&P futures, NASDAQ's uh, up anywhere from maybe uh, 0.25% to 0.5% in that area. The dollar getting a little bit of a bid, not much, and interest rates are also ticking up slightly on the long end in reaction to, I guess, a stronger than expected job number, even though a lot of people were expecting the numbers to be stronger than expected. But again, the most important thing to bear in mind when you're looking at all these numbers is to understand that it doesn't evidence a strong economy. It evidences the inflation that is being created by the Fed and all of the money that's being spent by the U.S. government. Yes, if you print enough money and spend enough money, well, sure, uh, in the short run, people are going to go back to work as they're spending all that money. But this is not the result of economic growth. We're spending money without actually producing the goods to give that money value. We are relying on the goods that are being produced by the rest of the world and their continued willingness to exchange the goods that they produce for the paper that we print. And what we're ignoring as we're looking at these strong GDP numbers, we're not paying attention to the exploding debt, which is making that GDP growth possible. Well, what are the consequences of that debt? How is having to service that debt, how is having to repay that debt going to weigh on GDP in the future? I mean, if we were growing our economy without growing our debt, in fact, if we were paying off our debt and growing our economy, that would be a different situation. That would be real economic growth that was sustainable. If it's based on savings and production, that's great. But if it's simply based on money printing, debt and consumption, 
then it's phony. And when you hear all these people talking about whether or not the economy is overheating, right, and whether or not it's going to cause inflation, as if what we have is too much economic growth, we don't. A legitimate economy can never overheat. It can grow as fast as productivity will allow. What overheats is inflation. It's when you have a phony economy, when the growth is not real, when it's the function of printing money and inflation, that's what overheats. And that's why prices go up. Legitimate economic growth can never be too strong. So when people keep talking about how we have this strong economy and it might be so strong, it'll overheat. It's not the strong economy that's going to overheat. What's happening is not a byproduct of economic strength. It's actually a byproduct of weakness. It's because the economy is so weak that the Federal Reserve is printing so much money, that the government is running such huge deficits, and that we're spending all this money in a weak economy, and that's why prices are going to go up. It's not economic strength that leads to higher prices. It's economic weakness compounded by massive money printing and deficits, which is exactly what we have, and stagflation is what we're going to get. And in fact, when it comes to the world's tolerance to continue to finance our trade deficits. I read a statistic, I think it was yesterday, that the US dollar's percentage of total foreign exchange reserves just hit a new 25-year low. And in fact, I think by the end of this year, the dollar's reserve percentage will take out that low and hit a new low as more and more central banks diversify their reserves out of U.S. dollars into other currencies, such as the euro or the Japanese yen. But, you know, I believe the real movement in reserves is not going to be from the dollar to other fiat currencies, but from the dollar and other fiat currencies to gold. I think gold is going to be the big winner as the dollar loses the battle to be the reserve asset or the reserve monetary unit because gold is not a currency. Gold is money and money should back up currencies, not other currencies. And so I think as more and more central banks really look to shore up the value of their currencies, it's not going to be by backing them with other currencies but by backing them with real money, and that's gold. And by the way, the price of gold did have a nice rebound yesterday following the rebound that we had on Wednesday. Gold price is up another 21.50. We settled the week just above 17.30 an ounce. Silver also had a strong day, up a little bit more than 50 cents an ounce back at 24.92. So not quite a 25 handle, but a nice rebound in gold and silver as well as the mining stocks. Again, I think that we've probably bottomed here. I think there's a lot of support for the gold market below 1700. There's certainly a lot of negativity, a lot of negative sentiment, a lot of gold bulls have thrown in the towel recently, which is another good sign of a capitulation of people just, you know, giving up on the market. A lot of the bitcoiners of course have taken an opportunity uh, to write gold's obituary. Obviously, I think they've written that prematurely as they continue to celebrate uh, the gains in Bitcoin. In fact, as I am recording, the price of Bitcoin is still trading just above 59,000, 59, uh, 200 and change. In fact, 
Bitcoin investors really ought to pay attention to what's been going on with Archigos Capital Management. Archigos Capital is a family office that used to be a hedge fund, uh, but was later transformed into a family office. And from what I've read about the company, they had about $10 billion of equity in their office. But they had levered it up thanks to a lot of uh, derivative-type transactions uh, with counterparties. They managed to control about $100 billion worth of stock. So they were levered tenfold. Now, of course, leverage is a two-edged sword, right? It works great when the stuff that you bought with borrowed money is going up, but it doesn't work so great when that stuff starts to come down. And the lesson for the Bitcoin community, not so much the leverage. I don't think that many uh, Bitcoiners are levered up, although there are some. I mean, I have talked on this podcast about people who have been borrowing against their Bitcoin because they don't want to sell, because they don't want to miss out on the moonshot, but they need some money. And so they have some entities that are willing to loan against their Bitcoin. And of course, those loans do not, you know, provide a tax consequence, right? If you sell your Bitcoin at a big profit, then you have to pay a tax. But if you borrow the money instead, well, then you don't have to pay the tax. But the problem comes if prices go down and then you get a margin call. In fact, if a lot of the people who have borrowed their Bitcoin are forced to sell them when they have a margin call, not only could they say a big loss in the you know their equity, but then they're going to trigger a tax consequence, assuming that they still exit with profits. Maybe they don't have nearly as much in profits as they thought, but the fact that they're going to be forced to sell means they're also going to be forced to pay the capital gains tax on the gains they have left. But let me go back to the Archegos situation because they had loaded up on stocks Uh, a few different stocks, not indexes, but individual names. And a lot of their positions were really synthetic. They didn't actually own the underlying stocks, but they entered into arrangements with counterparties, these prime brokers, where they basically were betting on the price movements of these stocks. And they had the same bets with various other counterparties. And I'm not even sure any one counterparty realized just how levered up this institution was because when it hit the fan, it's not just that Archegos has gotten wiped out, but a lot of these lenders, a lot of these banks around the world are going to take multi-billion dollar losses on the loans that they extended to Archegos because they can't pay them back. So the lenders here are losing a lot of money. This is probably one of the biggest blowups in the financial markets since long-term capital management, but probably one of the reasons that the financial industry can kind of just take this thing and without any dire consequences is because there's already so much liquidity flowing through the system. The rates are already at zero. There's so much money coming out of central banks that I'm sure it's just absorbing all these losses. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. But of course, uh, Archegos Capital, not going to be so fortunate. They're getting wiped out. Now, since they're no longer really a hedge fund, it's their own money or family money that's been lost here. You don't have a lot of irate customers, but you certainly have a massive loss of wealth with respect to this company. But I want to go over some of these stocks, or a few of them anyway, just as an example of not counting your chips when you're still at the table. And I'm talking to you, uh, Bitcoin hodlers. One of their big positions was Viacom CBS. And take a look at this stock. V-I-A-C is the symbol. This stock, up until like a week or two ago, was the best performing stock in the S&P 500. Look at the 52-week low on Viacom CBS, $11.92. Look at the high a couple of weeks ago, 101.97. Basically a 10-bagger, 10-fold increase in Viacom CBS. Why? I mean, what could have possibly been going on at Viacom CBS, right? This is not some kind of new age stock, new era uh, company, right? Viacom CBS, pretty old school, yet it's up tenfold top performing stock. Why? Well, obviously, it's because of all the leverage being used by this family office to buy the stock, right? They were the reasons that the stock was going up. Now, of course, on paper, when you're looking at these huge gains, right? Oh, these guys are geniuses. Look at how much money they're making in Viacom CBS. Yeah, because they were the ones buying it. But the key is not how much money you make on paper, but how much real money that you make when you exit the position, when you close it out. Now, if the only reason the stock is up is because you've been buying it, well, it may not be so easy to get out because you need to convince somebody else to buy. You've been the main buyer. And what obviously happened is the stock started to fall. And once it started to fall, that triggered the margin calls. And now Archegos had to sell into a falling market. And when the biggest buyer of a stock turns into the biggest seller at a time when other people are also selling, well, the bottom drops out. And that's exactly what happened. Right now, Viacom stock is back at $44.64. That's where it's closed. It's crashed by about 60% in the last couple of weeks. And that's what wiped out uh, this family office. Take a look at another one of their names, Discovery Incorporated. The symbol there is D-I-S-C-A. So that stock had a 52-week low of 1769, and a couple of weeks ago it was above $78. Another big winner, not quite as big as Viacom CBS. But where's the stock now? 43. It's gone from 78 to 43 in a couple of weeks, right? Because a big buyer was forced to sell and the price imploded. And so They were not able to get out at the high price that they had when they were just marking their trades to market when they actually had to turn those paper gains into real gains. They evaporated. Those paper gains turned into actual losses. Another one of their stocks, Techadu, symbol is GSX. That stock had a 52-week low of $27.06 and it got as high as $149.00. Although a couple of weeks ago, it had already pulled back. It looks like the stock was trading a little over 100, maybe around 117-ish was the high, but it imploded. The stock went all the way down 
to about 29 bucks. It almost got all the way back to the low, a complete round trip, but it crashed from above 100. It's at 32.18. This is all in two weeks, right? The whole, the bottom dropped out of this stock because a big buyer had to get out. And the point I'm trying to make here for the crypto crowd is you have a lot of people who have crowded into the same trade and everybody is convinced that they can't lose and so nobody wants to sell and now you've got some new money that has entered the market i think late pushed the prices up but everybody is talking about how rich they are they've got all this money but you know what they haven't sold the key is going to be getting out a lot of people don't realize that all they have right now is bitcoin and as much as they think Bitcoin is money, it's not. You're going to have to sell your Bitcoin to get money. And just like Archegos Capital, they had all these profits on paper. Those profits don't exist when they had to get out because in the process of getting out, wiped out the profits that they had when they weren't selling. And the same thing I think is going to happen to a lot of these crypto profits when a lot of the people who have been holding want to get out, they're going to find that a lot of those profits they thought they had don't exist anymore because the reason they had the profits was because nobody wanted to take them. But the minute people want to take the profits, the profits are taken away by the market and they no longer exist. Oh, by the way, I want to mention my April Fool's Day joke uh, that I did yesterday. Of course, you know, in the spirit of April Fool's, I uh, tweeted out uh, a very short tweet all I wrote was, I was wrong about Bitcoin. That's it. Probably one of the shortest tweets I've ever done. And it was the uh, most liked tweet I think I've ever done. I had 53,200 people as of now that liked the tweet. Uh, 7,200 people comment on it and over 11,400 retweeted it. Now, when it comes to the likes though, I'm really not sure why people were liking it. I mean, were people liking it because they liked my April Fool's joke and they thought it was funny? Or were people liking it because they didn't get the joke? They thought I was serious. And, and that's why they liked it. Now, if you read a lot of the articles that were written uh, in the Bitcoin community about this tweet, it's kind of a mixed bag. I mean, some people knew that, hey, it's April Fool's Day. He's joking. But there are a lot of articles about how I was serious. And you know, one of the things about the tweet, I didn't want to actually lie on my April Fool's Day tweet. So I didn't tweet out, hey, I was wrong about Bitcoin. It really is digital gold. People should buy Bitcoin and sell their gold. I'm buying a bunch of Bitcoin, right? I didn't, you know, say all that or tweet all that. I wasn't specific at all about what I was wrong about Bitcoin. I just said I was wrong about Bitcoin. And I just thought that, well, people would read into that tweet whatever they, they wanted. And of course, a lot of people took the opportunity to read far more into that tweet than what I actually wrote. I mean, look at some of these articles out there. Peter Schiff finally capitulates on Bitcoin, admits he was wrong from the start, that he's now a Bitcoin believer, right? I didn't write any of that. But a lot of people read into that what they want to do. And of course, a lot of people in the Bitcoin community always want to uh, puff everything up and tout everything up and take stuff out of context. So they use that tweet as a way to try to pump up Bitcoin and to get other people who maybe didn't even read the tweet or don't know too much about me. Oh, hey, look, here's another Bitcoin critic 
who has thrown in the towel, capitulated, and now he's joined the crowd. He's now one of us. He, he now likes Bitcoin. But I didn't put any of that in my tweet. I just said I was wrong about Bitcoin. And so at the end of the day, I commented on my own tweet with the obligatory April Fool, letting people know that I was just fooling. And if they bought it, they were an April Fool. But on that tweet, I pointed out the fact that I wasn't specific about what I was wrong about. So I'm going to read the tweet uh, that I uh, that I wrote in reply to my tweet. April Fool, since my tweet didn't specify what about Bitcoin I got wrong, it wasn't really a prank. <laughs> I didn't think the bubble would get this big or that so many otherwise smart people would be foolish enough to buy it. So I was wrong about that but right about everything else. That was my point. I didn't say I was wrong about my fundamental analysis about Bitcoin. Sure, I got stuff wrong about Bitcoin. I didn't expect it to get to $60,000 a coin. I was wrong. I didn't think you'd see uh, this much institutional interest in Bitcoin. I was wrong, right? I overestimated people's intelligence or maybe underestimated their greed. So sure, I got stuff wrong about Bitcoin, but what I didn't get wrong about Bitcoin is my overall assessment that it's not going to work as money. It's not going to be a store of value. It's not going to be a medium of exchange. It's a gigantic bubble and it's going to pop and the people who own it, including my son Spencer, are going to lose everything. Just like Archigos Capital Management. So there's your lesson. Learn from it. On a lighter note, though, I wonder how much money people are going to be willing to spend to buy my tweet as an NFT. Now, probably if I hadn't come out and said it was an April Fool's joke, maybe if I had said, hey, it's the real deal. I really am a Bitcoin convert. Maybe the the value of that tweet would be much, much higher in the Bitcoin community. So I might have destroyed the value of my own inventory by coming out and letting everybody know that the tweet wasn't serious. But still, it's my most liked tweet so it's got to have some value if you think tweets have any value. Oh, by the way, you know, I read a story last week that Playboy is now getting into the NFT business. It is going to be producing some content. Of course, nobody really cares about Playboy anymore. It's completely irrelevant. Nobody buys the magazines when you've got all this free stuff on the internet that's way better than Playboy ever was. But somehow now they've found new life with the NFTs. So nobody wants to buy Playboy magazines, but somehow they're willing to buy an NFT of a picture of a woman. I assume there are going to be nude photographs that you can buy. I mean, nude photographs that you can get for free all you want on the internet, probably the exact same photographs. Uh, but somehow uh, Playboy is going to resurrect itself now and try to buy in to the NFT uh, craze. You know, the same type of thing was happening, you know, during the dot-com boom when all sorts of failing companies were reinventing themselves as dot-coms. I mean, maybe Playboy was doing that stuff back then too. I'm not even sure, but they're clearly trying to hop on this bandwagon. But again, I'm not really sure how long this bandwagon is going to run before this thing completely derails. You know, I'm a small business owner myself, and when it comes to hiring, I know how important each and every hire is. It's important to get it right, especially in the litigious environment that we're in now. In fact, one bad hire runs the risk of blowing up your whole organization. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. You post, you screen, and then you interview. All on Indeed. 
On Indeed, you can get a quality short list of candidates whose resumes match your job description and you can get it faster. And you only pay for the candidates that meet your must-have qualifications, schedule, and complete video interviews in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting and hiring the right people fast and easy. With tools like Indeed Instant Match, which gives you quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your job description immediately. And the Indeed skills test on average reduces hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skills tests or you can add your own and then add your must have requirements so you only pay for the applicants that meet them. According to TalentNet, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all the other job sites combined. If you're hiring, then you need Indeed. And you can get started now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Peter. You get $75 credit at Indeed.com slash Peter. Indeed.com slash Peter. That's Indeed.com slash Peter. This offer is valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Oh, one more piece of crypto news. I read that now Goldman Sachs is following Morgan Stanley's lead in that they're going to allow uh, high net worth clients to invest small portions of their portfolio in Bitcoin. Now, again, why are they limiting the availability to very high net worth investors and then only a very small percentage of their portfolio? Because I think they are worried about getting sued. They don't believe in this, but they know that there are some of their customers that want exposure and there's probably some of their representatives who have drunk the Kool-Aid and they want to put their clients into crypto. And maybe the feeling is, hey, if I got a client that wants some crypto and Morgan Stanley is going to let him do it and I'm Goldman Sachs and I'm worried about losing business to Morgan Stanley, okay, I'm going to let my clients buy here. They don't have to close their accounts to go to Morgan Stanley, but still they want to make sure that the clients who lose money in Bitcoin are not going to sue them to recover their losses. So the way you limit the chances that you get sued is that you make sure that you only allow very wealthy, sophisticated investors to speculate, and then with only a small percentage of their portfolio. So if they lose money, it's a loss that they can afford and they were smart enough to know better. If they allowed smaller customers to buy or they allowed clients to put larger percentages of their portfolios into something so speculative, then they would have been much more vulnerable uh, to having to be held liable following the losses when their you know, clients uh, ended up suing them to try to get the money back that they lost uh, gambling in the crypto casino. But I want to wrap up today's podcast by talking a little bit more about some of these social issues, because earlier this week on Monday, in fact, the long awaited trial of Derek Chauvin began for the death of George Floyd. And he's been charged uh, with murder one, murder two, murder three and manslaughter. And the trial started. And first of all, I think it was a big mistake on the part of the judge not to uh, change the venue and move this trial out of Hennepin County. I don't think there's any way that uh, Greg Chauvin gets a fair trial in front of this jury. I mean, as much as they tried to get an unbiased jury, I think that's impossible in this county because I think the people who are on the jury 
are going to be very afraid of an acquittal. I think they want to convict Chauvin, and I think they're afraid not to. And I think that's understandable because not only may they be afraid personally, right, that there may be some retribution, and I know their names are, you know, anonymous now, but sometimes these names leak out. People find out who is on the jury, and they could be very afraid for their own safety living in this community if they vote to acquit. But even if they're not afraid for their own safety, what about their neighborhoods? I mean, they know that if there's anything but a conviction, in fact, even if there's a conviction for manslaughter, there needs to be a murder conviction because I don't think the mob will be satisfied with anything less than murder. And I think there could be riots and looting. And so if you live you know, in Minneapolis and you're worried about another riot, if you don't convict, how are you going to be impartial in this trial? You, you really can't as much as you may want to be. And of course, you know, I think a lot of people who are sitting on the jury, see, if this jury convicts, right, they can all be proud of the part that they played. They can do interviews on talk shows. They, they don't have to hide their identity. Uh, you know, they could be out in the open because there's going to be no danger. I mean, if you vote to convict of murder, you're a hero, right? Justice was done, right? You're not a racist. But if you acquit, I mean, you got to stay in hiding for the rest of your life. You can never admit that you were on that jury. So I think from a personal perspective, I think the jurors will be able to feel much better about themselves uh, and maybe even turn it into a career or something. They could start speaking, maybe even get a book deal. I don't know. But I think there's probably a lot that these jurors will gain if they go along with the narrative of convicting uh, Chauvin, whether he's guilty or not. And so I think that the best way to have avoided some of this, I don't even think all of it could have been avoided, but they should have changed the venue to a smaller town somewhere in Minnesota, but far away from Minneapolis, far removed from the looting and the rioting and all that. So at least the jurors could have sat in deliberation without those fears, or at least those fears to a greatly mitigated degree. And I think that this was even error because they didn't, they didn't move it. Would it be reversible error if he's convicted and they have an appeal? I don't know. But I think it was a mistake uh, not to move the case. And number two, obviously, this is a huge overcharge in this case. Uh, there is no way that Derek Chauvin is guilty of murder in the first or second degree. I mean, he did not arrive on the scene with the intention of killing George Floyd. I mean, there's no evidence that they could possibly put forward that would suggest that. In fact, I don't even think there's evidence that they can put forward for murder in the third degree, which, by the way, was added last minute by the, the prosecution because I think they realized that they really had no chance of murder one or two, and they wanted murder somewhere in the conviction. So murder three is there. I think they have a chance of getting it, not because they have any evidence of it, but I think the jury may be afraid not to uh, convict for murder three. But if anything, it's a manslaughter case. That That's what it should be. It's manslaughter. If it's anything, it's manslaughter. The difference between manslaughter and third degree murder has to do with a depraved mind. And I don't see evidence of that despite Chauvin's uh, you know, conduct. I, I just don't see that. But I think potentially Chauvin is going to have to take the stand in his own defense and explain to this jury 
his actions, exactly what was going through his mind at the time and why he made the decisions that he made. I think the jury is going to need that. A lot of times uh, when you're convicted of something and you're the accused, uh, you don't testify because the, the burden of proof is on the government. But I think in this case, given the emotion and the political stakes that are involved, I really think the burden in the mind of the jury is is shifted to the defense. I think that Chauvin actually has to prove to this jury that he didn't intend to kill George Floyd, that he actually had good intentions, even though it didn't appear that way. And even if his actions may have inadvertently contributed to George Floyd's death, that was not his intention. He may have to convince the jury. He may have to sell the jury on that and introduce some emotion on his side to counteract all the emotional testimony of all these witnesses who really, I think, are irrelevant to the case that the prosecution is putting on, but they're putting them on simply to tug at the heartstrings of the jurors and make them more likely to want to convict just to vindicate them and to vindicate the family and, and, uh, and, and, and George Floyd himself. But I'm still interested in seeing uh, what evidence the, the uh, prosecution is going to put forward and looking at the evidence that is going to be used in defense. Personally, I think the key is going to be, did Eric Chauvin's knee actually cause or greatly contribute to the death of George Floyd, or might George Floyd have died anyway? Even if they had rolled him on his side, even if they had tried to administer CPR sooner than the medics administer it, would it have made a difference? Would he have died anyway? You know, I tend to think that he would have. I'm not sure there's anything that those officers could have done to save his life given the situation because everybody tends to agree that when they should have changed is when George Floyd basically lost consciousness under the knee of Chauvin. They should have rolled him over. They should have done something to try to resuscitate him. Maybe they should. You know, that was my initial reaction. But again, we need to hear from the officer's perspective an explanation of why they did what they did. But at the end of the day, it might not have even mattered because he had so much drugs in his system. He had so many other health issues that were working in tandem with that massive overdose of drugs that, you know, he might have died no matter what these officers did. But we'll never know because they did not do anything to attempt to save him until the ambulance arrived on the scene and they tried to save him in the ambulance. But I think it's interesting, though, because at the same time, right, this trial is getting started. There was another crime, another murder caught on video that has received very little media attention. And you can watch this thing on, you know, on YouTube. I mean, it's pretty disturbing stuff. But it happened in Washington, D.C., and two teenage girls carjacked uh, a guy in D.C. And I guess he came out to the car, you know, in the middle of the carjacking and say, hey, that's my car. What are you doing? So they they attacked him with a stun gun. Uh, but he was holding on to the to the door, you know, maybe trying to open it up. And so the girls just peeled out. Right. They stepped on the gas and they just went, you know, peeling out. And the guy's hanging on to the car. And then while he's hanging on to the car, I think he smashed into another car or something like that. And then they took a turn at high speed and the car basically flipped over and it sent the guy flying 
uh, and he and he to his death. I mean, he smashed into a wall. I don't know at what speed you know he was thrown to this wall, but the guy was dead on the scene, lying on the ground, dead. And so this whole thing is caught on video, even to the point where the girls are crawling out of the car that's turned on its side. And I think one of them is like, oh, I, my cell phone. And they're worried about their cell phone. Meanwhile, this guy is lying, bleeding dead on the street. These girls that just carjacked the car and killed this guy couldn't care less. They don't even stop to look at him, check out his body. Maybe he's okay. Maybe they should try to help the guy that they just killed. No, they just take off, right? I mean, yeah. And this is a horrible thing. And now these two girls have been charged with some degree of murder. I mean, obviously, I don't think it's, again, this isn't a premeditated murder. They probably didn't plan on killing the guy. They planned on stealing his car. Uh, but clearly, uh, their actions resulted in his death. So maybe this could be a murder three. I don't know. But it's pretty damn bad uh, what they did. But the thing is, it's on film, you know, I'm sure, or on video. Now, you know, there's stuff like this happens probably all the time. But it's not often that it's caught on video. And that's when a lot of these things uh, become big national stories because you have all the video evidence that's so horrific, except this didn't become a national story at all. I mean, they barely report on it. And the reason it is not a big national story is because the teenage girls happen to be black, right? Now, if these girls were white, I think it would be a much bigger story. In fact, I think it may be a hate crime because the person who was killed was a Muslim man. And so the media may have said, ah, you see, this is white hatred of Muslims. And especially if you not only change the race of the girls, but if you change the gender. What if these were two white boys? that killed a Muslim man. Well, then, of course, it would be a hate crime. These guys would be made out to be white supremacists. They would be looking into their backgrounds. You know, are their parents Republicans? Worse, did they vote for Donald Trump, right? Because the fact that they're women, you know, women are also victims. So if you're a woman and you're, and you're white, right, maybe your gender cancels out your whiteness and you're not that bad. But if you're a man and you're white, well, you got nothing going for you. You're just pure oppressor, right? You've just, you got nothing but privilege. And, and so there they always want to spin that story. So if you had two teenage white kids killing a Muslim, well, then it would have been a big story. Now, of course, if the Muslim were a black man, well, it would have been even worse, right? Because blacks, I think, are even a bigger victim. I guess on the scale of victims, I think Blacks are, are the highest, right? They're the most victimized because, after all, they were slaves uh, in, you know, in the 1800s or before 1865. So they're the biggest victims. And so it would have been an even bigger story had it been two white boys, right, teenage boys, who killed a black man. Then it would have been a national story. It would have been about white supremacy. It would have been about racism. But, of course, it wouldn't have been, right? I don't think these girls couldn't care less you know, whether this guy was Muslim. They just wanted to steal his car. They didn't give a damn about human life. They didn't care what uh, the religion was or what the gender was or what the ethnicity was. And again, it shouldn't even matter. None of this matters. In fact, take a look at this other shooting that took place like a week ago. This was in Boulder, Colorado, right? You had a young 21-year-old Muslim guy, Syrian-born, but American, 21, killed 10 people, right? 
Now, yes, this was a story because it's a it's a mass shooting, right? So those are always big stories, especially because the media is very much in support of gun control. And so they always want to point to any mass shooting as a reason why we need gun control. But of course, from my perspective, it's a reason why we need more guns in the hands of law-abiding people so that when somebody breaks into a market and starts shooting people, somebody in the market has a gun and can shoot back and kill the shooter before the shooter has a chance to kill so many innocent people. So I always look at it from a different perspective. But the reason I want to talk about this particular incident again is because of the lack of media attention to the possibility of a hate crime, right? Which of course it would if the genders or ethnicities were different. Because here you have a Muslim, right? who was the shooter, but look at the venue. He basically shot up a supermarket that catered to the Jewish community. They specialized in kosher food. Uh, It was just a couple of days before the beginning of Passover. And this Muslim went into this supermarket that serves the Jewish community days before Passover and killed people. Now, why this particular supermarket? I mean, it's, it's not unreasonable to jump to the conclusion that it was motivated based on hatred of Jews. I mean, maybe it wasn't, but clearly when you have a Muslim going out of his way, I mean, there are probably plenty of supermarkets. I think he drove maybe 20, 30 miles, probably passed a lot of supermarkets that weren't specifically uh, serving the Jewish community to find this particular uh, market so close to Passover. I mean, certainly if you had a white guy that went into a black neighborhood, maybe a day before Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and maybe it specialized in soul food or whatever, and he came in there and and, and killed a bunch of people, don't you think the whole thing would be racially based? It would all be about a hate crime. Everybody would be screaming about how this proves that there's so much hatred in America and there's so much bigotry. Of course, Now, I don't know whether or not this guy was motivated uh, by hatred of Jews, but you know what? I don't even care. It doesn't even make a difference. You see, trying to create a hate crime, this is very dangerous. This is not something that we want. We don't want the government trying to determine why people are killing people or why people are behaving in a certain manner and then punishing them for their thoughts. The thoughts are not criminal. It's their actions that are criminal. You don't want to allow government to criminalize thought because once you do that, you have gone down a very dangerous slope to tyranny. Look, it's bad when people hate people, right? But you have a right to hate. Everybody has a right to hate anybody they want for whatever reason they want. What you don't have a right to do is kill. And you don't have a right to harm people in any way because you hate them. You don't have a right to harm their person. You don't have a right to harm their property. But you can hate them all you want, right? But to try to say a hate crime is worse than any other crime, this is is a very dangerous thing to do. Look, when this guy, I think his name is Ahmed Al-Alawi Alissa or something like that. But when this guy was in his car, driving the 20 to 30 miles to this kosher market and he's got his you know his rifle in his hand 
and he's thinking about all the innocent people that he is going to murder. And here in this case, this is murder one, right? This is premeditated murder, the worst kind, right? This is not just killing somebody in the heat of passion. This isn't killing somebody by accident. This is having a plan to murder people, having plenty of time to think about what you're going to do, and then executing your plan, right? This is death penalty stuff. This is the worst thing you can do, right? Does it matter if while this guy is driving to this market, in his mind, he's thinking, I'm going to kill me a bunch of Jews. I don't like the Jews. I hate the Jews. And I'm going to shoot these people because they're Jews. Does it make any difference if he's thinking that or he's just thinking, I'm going to kill some people. I don't like people. I hate people. I just want to kill people at random, right? Is, is that somehow any less a crime? No, of course not. It's exactly the same. Murder is murder, right? Yes, there's a difference degrees, premeditated murder versus murder, you know, in the heat of passion, but it doesn't matter about the motivation. I mean, if you murder people because you want their money, right? You murder people for profit. That's the same thing as murdering them uh, because you just don't like them, right? It doesn't matter. That type of motivation is irrelevant. It's the actions that need to be punished, not the thought that led to those actions. Because the next thing you know, thought's going to be a crime, even if there is no action. The government is now going to make it illegal to have bad thoughts. And when that happens, when you have the thought police out there, and it's not even, hey, we're punishing people not for their actions as a result of hatred, but for what they thought. And maybe not for what they thought, but what they expressed. Maybe if you express yourself you know, in writing or you express yourself with words, and now the government says, hey, we don't like what you're expressing, then we're going to punish you for that. Because, hey, you know, given that expression, well, maybe we're going to preemptively, you know, charge you with a crime because clearly you may do something based on that thought, based on those bad thoughts that you're having. We want to stop you from committing a crime before it's done. We don't have to wait for you to actually do anything. Once you've expressed uh, these these thoughts, well, then we need to preemptively lock you up. That's where we're going. And again, it may start where the thoughts are anti-certain groups. But at the end of the day, what it'll end up being is the thoughts will be anti-government, right? When you get an oppressive government and then you have people that want to resist that oppression and are now going to be trying to uh, maybe educate other people about trying to resist government oppression. Right now, that hate speech uh, is a threat not to the freedom of the people. that They're trying to liberate the people. The threat is to the, the government that is oppressing the people. And now you've empowered that government with the tools to lock up those political prisoners uh, because you've made hate a crime, right? So that is the slippery slope. Even though, yes, it's wrong for people to hate, you need to respect their right to do that. Just like with free speech, people have the right to say things that offend you. You can't say offensive speech is illegal because the next thing you know, what you want to say is offensive to somebody. And when you have a corrupt government, anything anybody says to shine a light on that corruptness or to bring an end to that corruptness becomes offensive to the government. And you don't want the government to be empowered to imprison those people, you want to maintain the power of the people to keep government in check.
and to keep the government itself imprisoned in the chains of the Constitution.